morning. Good morning. Couple things real quickly. If you did not get a communion cup on the way in, just be ready. We're going to have Lord's Supper at the end, and so uh, have your hand ready to go up. We'll have uh, opportunity for you to raise your hand if you did not get one. I hope you did on the way in. That'll be at the end of the service. Uh, second thing is uh, men's conference. If you have not heard about it, we're having a men's conference uh, August 26, 27. Man, we need you to go and register. We have 16 churches. We're believing about 500 men in our church are going to participate, as well as 16 other churches. Uh, Friday night, August 26, Saturday morning, August 27. It's going to be great. And so go ahead and register um, if you're a man. If you're a woman, make your man register, all right? Uh, and uh, then finally, let me reiterate what Steve said about vintage. Here's the thing. I, I don't know how to explain it any better than this if you haven't checked out 830 yet. It's the same band that leads us in modern worship every Sunday morning. Whoever's up here at the uh, 1110 service is going to be here at the uh, 830 service, soon to be 845 service. And uh, the only difference is it's just a little bit more chill and there's some different songs, a combination of old songs, new songs, um, and just done in a really cool, I guess some people described it as a chill service. It's a little more, you know, unplugged, I guess you could say. But, uh, but the reason it's great if you guys would consider, a couple of you, uh, maybe a couple hundred of you, consider it every now and then, is because when we have just massive days, this, this service is the one that there is zero room. So just consider it and have, uh, maybe check it out in a couple weeks. August 7th is when everything's changing, service time, so at 845, check out the vintage uh, if you would. That'd be great. And if you're watching at home and maybe you haven't even checked our church out, that'd be a great option for you as well. Go and take your Bibles, turn in, turn on your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus in just a minute. While you're turning, I want to take just a little bit of a, a personal moment to share a little bit from my heart because uh, seven years ago, July 19, 2015, seven years and five days ago, uh, the church voted on me as the pastor. And there's a picture that's going to be on the screen of, of our family that day. And uh, you can see, if you know any of our kids, you can spot them and see how much that's changed in seven years, right? That is crazy when I think about that. Um, and, uh, and so with all that, a lot of things just rushing through our hearts and our minds this last week. Amy and I went to Colorado with our girls, but we spent a couple of days with a church consultant who kind of walks pastors and wives through kind of transitional moments in, in ministry, and it was super helpful. Lance Witt was, uh, was a blessing to us, but it kind of uh, brought back a lot of emotion. When we came to our uh, church seven years ago, we came with a combination of divine expectation and personal hesitation. I'm sure that you guys have made decisions like that in the past where you were excited, but at the same time, kind of sick to your stomach because we left a place we loved. We left people we cared about. And we had invested our lives for 10 years in a church. And, uh, and so when God led us here, it was really tough. It was a challenging couple of uh, years in the beginning and uh, you guys welcomed us with open arms, but we were heartbroken in many ways. We also knew that I wasn't the stereotypical First Baptist Church pastor. <laughs> That's an understatement, all right? Because uh, at least my stereotype, I had a stereotype of First Baptist pastors, and I just was not nearly as academically astute and intelligent and stuffy. Oh, did I say that? I'm sorry. You know, I just didn't think that I fit that mold, and so... So I, I really was, you know, pretty, pretty uh, anxious about the whole thing. But un, 
unpredictably, I guess in the midst of the unpredictability of those initial days, God brought us together, and it really has been a super blessing. But as we talked with Lance, a few things came out that I wanted to share with you. First of all, uh, I, it's absolutely without question that God brought us here. It wasn't like a, a mistake, no doubt about it. I know that that may be seven years in hindsight. You'd say, well, that's silly, Wayne. We wouldn't think it was a mistake. But sometimes you and I both know we make decisions and we look back and we question. Well, there's no question in our heart and our mind. This is where God wanted us and has wanted us. As, as challenging as it was, we've fallen in love with you. We've fallen in love with the church, uh, upstate mission, and the vision that God has brought us to. And, and really, many of you are brand new. And so all of this is like, wow, what, what's this about? But God has built an exceptional team. And this is evidence of his grace and, I think, purpose in our being here as well. Um, within the first 12 months of our being here, uh, Wes Walker and Pat Gillen came on the scene with their families in 2016. And I'm just here to tell you, much of what has happened in our church fellowship is a result of these two guys, as well as many others. But that was a wonderful year in the life of our church when God brought them. Josh and Emily, Dallas, Dustin, all of these families were not here in 2015. Put it this way, um, 16 staff members were here seven years ago that are here today. Now, that may seem like a lot, but we have 51 staff members right now, full-time, part-time. So 69% of your current ministers and staff are here since I came seven years ago. And uh, I, I could give you more and more examples, but one good example is our Anderson campus pastor who preached last Sunday was a senior in high school seven years ago, all right? Our downtown minister uh, to students, uh, Miss Kaylee, was just a new, newly graduated high school graduate. Um, and so it kind of puts it in perspective. Um, there's so many, we, I'm not going to name everybody, but our most recent um, key staff hire, uh, Corey Watts and his family. God just brought amazing people to join this team. I want to give you an opportunity to thank God for the best church staff on the planet because they're amazing. Would you praise God for them? They really are. And through all of that, God has done unimaginable things. In seven years, we launched Harrison Bridge. We planted Five Forks, Malden, Anderson. Uh, we merged with Laurel Baptist Church and about to plant Upstate Church Haywood. God just has done crazy stuff that's been amazing. But we are at a transitional moment as a church, and, and I have had to come to grips with, I'm at a transitional moment in my own life and personal ministry. Uh, Amy and I have been walking through all of this uh, for the last 25 years in marriage. And by the way, you know I don't take personal things like this uh, very often. I am beyond grateful for my wife. Without question, she is the better uh, nine-tenths of me, all right? She's not my better half. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't know how to spell my name. I'm serious, all right? And so I do want you guys to just uh, thank God for uh, my, my wife, your pastor's wife. Would you just thank God for Amy? She really is the best thing about me. But by God's grace, we kind of navigated through a ton of change over the, over the years. We've remained unified, which is a miracle of God, a multi-generational, multi-form, multi-styled, multi-campus church. It's crazy, right? Uh, but in, in the midst of unity, we've also grown through a global pandemic. 
So it's easy just to be aware of what's happening in here, looking around on a Sunday morning at 11.10, and be like, okay, this is all there is. But you need to understand, look, you're part of a church that has 6,000 members, 3,000, almost 3,000, a little bit under 3,000 worship on one of the campuses every week. And for, for a guy like me f- from Georgia, uh, that's crazy because I grew up in a town of 3,500. So we have twice as many members as in the town that Amy and I met each other in. It's more than twice the number of population of Dallas Wilson's hometown of Millen, Georgia, all right? Uh, I guess we're all from small towns. But, but this is amazing to know that God has given us the responsibility to serve and to lead a body such as this. And so with that, many of you express concerns from time to time about uh, we don't want you guys to burn out. We don't want you guys to be overwhelmed. And not just me, but our whole staff. You know, our whole, our whole staff is obviously it's a, it's a heavy load at times. But I want you to know nobody's burning out. Amy and I are not burning out, even though maybe we've caught on fire a couple of times, right? But God has, God has shown his grace. And uh, one thing that we talked a lot about with Lance this last week is that we want to finish well. And I believe I'm speaking for the whole staff and all the ministers. We want all of our ministers to finish well. We want to lead well, but we want to make it for the long haul. And if I'm going to make it to 25 years of service here, and that would be my hope and my goal, um, then I'll need to stay healthy physically, relationally, mentally, and especially spiritually. You may say, why are you telling us all this? Because number one, I want to hold our staff accountable for the same things. But I want to say it publicly to you after this week because I want you to hold me accountable for it as well. I still sincerely believe that this is only the beginning. And so this is what worries me. If it's already a big deal and it's already challenging, it's only going to become more challenging if we try to maintain the same pace and the same, the same kind of uh, structure and dependency on uh, the staff that we've had in the past. And so what we have to do is, is make adjustments. And so I don't even know what all that looks like except that I want you to know that I want to protect our ministers from making mistakes. There's far too many pastors and ministers who are absolutely blowing it at the end and just, just absolutely destroying the testimony that God has given to them. My heart and my commitment to you is that nobody on your staff will be in a position to where that will happen. We want to do everything we can to maximize their effectiveness and their stewardship of their life and their family because if they'll never be a better pastor than they are a daddy. Y'all all right? They'll never be a better pastor than they are a husband. Never be a better staff member than they are a wife or a mom. And so with all that in mind, I want you to know we're going to be very intentional. But finally, Amy and I are 100% invested in the ministry of First Baptist Simpson and Upstate Church. We are here for the long haul. Now, what that means is, let me put an asterisk on that. If God calls us tomorrow to go to Honduras as a missionary, we're going, all right? But, but as far as we know, all right, <laughs> uh, uh, there's no visions of grandeur. There's no greener grass. There's no next big step. You know what my next big step? I want God to keep doing something in the upstate of South Carolina. I want God to do something bigger than us, and I want to be a part of it. And so while we've learned not to make a promise, our heart's desire is to do everything we can to retire here and to retire well. So after I, I make that 25 years, what I hope is that I can be your senior adult pastor, all right? If, you, if you'll let me, we'll see. But the future is bright. And, and, and as we share about the future, I, I want you to keep this date in mind, October 2nd, and then we're going to d- dig into Exodus. October 2nd will be Vision Sunday. And Vision Sunday is a day that you do not want to miss. 
There's a lot of things that are going to come and announcements are going to happen. Renderings are going to be given. It's going to be exciting about what God is doing. I mean, God is working in immeasurable ways. Lives are being changed and it's because of your obedience and your willingness to say yes to what God has called you to do. So I love you very much. Would you just praise God for all that he's done and all he's doing? Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn, in, turn on your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 in just a minute. The Passover. Now we're talking about the Passover and this pinnacle, if you will, this exclamation point of where we've been headed for the last few weeks. The setting is Egypt. The mood is chaos. Egypt is, is really facing devastation because of all of the series of nine plagues that have been poured out on Egypt. And, and this isn't just a, a string of bad luck, right? This isn't just tough luck that Egypt is facing. This is the judgment of God. But it's not just the judgment of God. It's God keeping his promise. It's God doing what he said he was going to do. You remember what we said? The promises of God are just really a foreshadowing or giving you a heads up for what's going to happen. So when God promises you something, it is going to happen. But more important, we understand that in our lives, as we look at an Old Testament story, we might think that's so distant. Man, it's super relevant to us. And we're going to see how relevant the story of the Passover is in all of our lives today. Now, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, but now centuries later, they're stuck in Egypt. The people of God are now slaves in Egypt, and the time has come for God to get his people out of there, but God has one more plague. Now, Brandon and Will did a great job setting up and explaining the significance and the details of the plagues over the last two weeks. And while hard to grasp, this is important, we, we remember the, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 where he kind of challenges us with this truth that he allows it, God allows it to rain on both the just and the unjust. And so there's this undeniable reality that none of us have to like, and that is that good things and bad things happen to good people and bad people. In other words, if you serve God, it doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. There are going to be bad days. There are going to be tough times. And in the life of uh, the people of Israel, even though God was bringing the plagues on Egypt, there were some plagues that impacted the people of Israel. Now, we know that the cattle and uh, the crops did not die. So this were, these were plagues that did not impact the people of Israel. But the 10th plague is a plague that impacted everybody. It was not exclusive to the people of Egypt. It was, it was actually inclusive of everyone. And here's the kind of the relevance of that. It was inclusive of everyone that was a sinner. And that was everybody. And, and, and so we understand the executed judgment of God in the 10th plague is on everyone. Now here's the thing. When the executed judgment of God is on everyone, it makes us very aware we are in desperate need of grace being extended. And so it's no different than us in a New Testament concept looking back at this story. Today, we are all under, when we're born, we're under the executed judgment of God, all right? Just because you're a human, because you were born in Adam, a sinner, we are all sinners, not because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In other words, we're born a sinner. We live in a fallen world. 
And so we're under the judgment of God because of our sin. Executed judgment. It is only by the grace of God that we are spared the judgment of God. So grace is extended even though judgment is executed. And so this is how it's going to, we're going to see the parallel here in the text today. But this is a challenge because a lot of people, I've heard people say it two different ways. And you probably heard it. I hope you haven't said it, but you may have in the past because we're human. But, but some people say, I don't, I don't think God would do that. Like when you read a story like this, because here's what we're going to hear in just a minute. We're going to literally read where God is going to take the life of the firstborn baby of every family in Egypt. That is a hard thing to hear. It's a hard thing to read the story of, of Achan and his family being stoned because of the man's sin. That's, that's a very, there are things in the Bible that are hard for us to hear. And sometimes when we read them, we say, I don't, I don't think God would do that. Or maybe somebody would say, I don't believe in a God that would do that. Let me caution you not to say, I, will, I don't believe in a God that would do that if you read it in the Bible. Because if you read that God did it in the Bible and you don't believe in a God who would do that, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible, which is a major, major statement to make. So our response should not be, I don't believe in a God who would do that. It should be, what's God telling me in his doing that? I mean, why did he do that? I mean, how can I understand? Because in the Old Testament story here of the Exodus, it helps us see who God is. Our problem is we want to see God as only merciful and loving. We don't, want to, we don't want to balance God, not in our flesh anyway. Our culture most definitely does not want to balance God. We don't really want a God at all in our culture. Our culture just wants, you know, a, 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 a grocery list giver, you know. Our culture just wants a, a, a person to sign off on their purpose and their dreams. They, they don't want a God who actually instructs and actually executes anything. And so this is where we get into this struggle here. But listen to the distinction. The message of the tenth plague is that... God is holy and just, but at the same time, he is merciful and loving. You, you may say, where do you see merciful and loving? Because the Passover is a picture of God's mercy and his love. And so the balance of God is that he is both just and merciful. God is both holy and loving. He is not one or the other. He is both. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so what we have to do when we look at Scripture is recognize this is the balance of who God is. He is both judge and sacrifice. And so the first Passover would reveal God's ultimate plan of salvation for Israel. But ultimately, as we look back at this story, we're going to see this is also the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one thing is certain, God was executing judgment because he was just. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. We're going to go fast. For I will pass through the land, verse 12 of chapter 12. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Why? I am the Lord. Say those four words with me. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we, we see first that God's judgment is certain. 
judgment is certain. There's no way around that. Look, and we, we can say all day long that we don't like this, but it doesn't make a difference. Judgment is certain. We live in a day where nobody wants judgment. We live in a day where nobody wants a judge. In fact, think about it. We live in a day when people want God without having a judge. We don't want God to judge us. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want God to execute anything. We really just want someone that will approve who we are, that will affirm what we do and our decisions. But justice cannot exist without a judge. Would you say that with me? Justice cannot exist without a judge. This is just true. This is common sense. This isn't, this isn't very difficult to understand. Justice cannot exist without a judge. We must acknowledge judgment is certain. Now, people may ask, how can a good God do this or that? Listen to this. God's executed judgment is not without extended grace. And this is where we see the goodness of God. Now, we see the justice of God in his judgment. But we see the goodness of God in his grace. God never leaves us hanging. And we never have to have to excuse sin in our life. Listen to the grace God gives us. He doesn't just give us grace to prevent us from facing trouble. Here's what he does. Look at verse uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. You might want to jot this down. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's that mean? That means that God's never going to put you in a place where you are set up to fail. He's always going to give you the grace that will help you overcome the temptation. So that's why we don't have an excuse. God always gives us the grace. He extends the grace to overcome the temptation. But here in the passage that we're looking at, it teaches us that God's not just faithful when we're tempted, but when we're desperate. He's, he's, he's faithful to us when we come up against a problem. He extends grace and a solution. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said... Uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And it helps us look through that New Testament lens, even at this story, that Israel was desperate and they were seeking a solution. And so he executed judgment, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, but he extended grace by saying, if you'll just follow these instructions, your child will be safe. Your family will be safe. You will not be under the execution of the judgment. You will be under the extension of the grace that I've provided. So yes, judgment is certain, but here's the second thing. Rescue is always offered. Rescue is offered. God has given you a way of escape. God has given you an opportunity of rescue and not judgment. Look at verses 3 through 7 in chapter 12 of Exodus. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Now verse 5 goes on to say this lamb must be without blemish. And then verse 6, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Now you may say, what is going on here, man? 
this is crazy. Now, here's the thing. Some people don't have a church background or maybe you haven't been in church a whole lot, but you just hear about Jesus and maybe you were saved recently. You may wonder, what's the deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament? I'm going to tell you some stuff that I think will help you understand that in just a second. But this is so important. The, the significance here is so important. Because if you've ever wondered, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why, why do they call Jesus the Lamb of God? Why do they call him the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth? I mean, I've heard that stuff in Revelation. I don't understand the significance of it. The significance really is it's pointing back. The Old Testament lamb, the Old Testament sacrifice, even the Old Testament sacrifice of the lamb here in Exodus at the Passover is just a picture. It's a picture of Jesus himself. Uh, So what was God doing here? He is executing judgment while extending grace. He is pouring out his wrath on sin and rebellion on his enemies while extending grace to those who would choose to trust him. So he was making a way of escape for those who will choose to follow him. No different than the gospel in the New Testament. God's instructions get very specific though. I think verses 8 and forward are just hilarious. Listen to this. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat anything raw or boiled in water. It's very specific. But Roasted. Can I say it again? Roasted on the fire. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. But look at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened. Really? I mean, how many of y'all ever sat down at the dinner table and just, I'm going to have to let a notch out of this one, amen? You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I don't know. He was like, fasten your seatbelt, baby. Go ahead and fasten your belt. So, so eat with your belt fastened with your sandals on your feet. Don't eat barefooted, baby. Uh uh-uh. uh. Put your shoes on and hold your staff in the hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I just think this is so good. I love this. All right. I, hope, I don't know if y'all are going to be geeking on this or not, but listen. He's like, eat with your shoes on, man. Eat with your shoes on. Why would he say eat with your shoes on? Because you got to be ready to run, because I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm coming for you. This is not just about saving your children. This is about being delivered from bondage. And you've got to be ready. So this faith in me is not just about spreading the blood of the sacrifice on your door. It is positioning yourself for me to come and get you. It is showing by trust and by faith that you are ready. That you believe. That you trust me. That I'm going to deliver you from bondage. Put your shoes on. Fasten your belt and get ready. Hold your staff because we're going to be crossing the Red Sea soon enough. This is beautiful. So we look back at chapter 12, verse 12 again, and we see the contrast. Executed judgment, extended grace. Read verse 12 again with me. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Why? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I alone have the right to give life and to take life. The reason we cannot or should not question, not that it's wrong to say, God, why? But the reason we can't question the authority of God to take life is because he's God. He's the Lord. I'm not God. You're not God. And so it's like it, it's, it's an inconsistent irrational uh, comparison for us to try to somehow say that this is, this is like 
I wouldn't take life. Well, you're not God. I'm not God. He's the one who gave life, and he is the one who has the right to do anything that he wants to do. But look at verse 13. This is so significant. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What's that mean? I will not execute judgment on you. I will extend grace. Why? Because you've got the blood on your doorpost. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what does this teach us? And among other things, listen, God's promise is better. You could add the word always. God's promise is always better. God's promise is better. I mean, look, you may have, you may have been having, having to make a decision like, should I do this, should I do that? I know God's leading me this way. Look, you know this. If you chose this way, you know you should have done this. Why? Because God's promise is always better. And if you did follow him into a hard place, you, you went there and you followed his will, you know now, looking back, God's promise is better. God's promise is always better. And this is what the people of God had to learn. This is the introduction to a major doctrinal point. I want you to hear this concept because this is kind of repeated in, in the whole New Testament concept of our theology, what we believe about God. Listen, this new introduction of a major doctrinal concept is salvation through substitution. And that is the lamb that was killed and the blood that was applied to the doorpost was a substitutionary atonement. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. So instead of the death of the child, it was the death of the lamb. You may say, well, that's so confusing. And I get it because, I mean, we're in North America in 2022. It's really hard to, to cross the cultural and the generational bridge to understand this Jewish concept and this ultimately this foreshadowing that God was giving us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, here's what we have to understand. It's what I was going to tell you about the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I want to say it again because this is a simple statement that will help us understand a lot. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. All those prophecies telling you this and that, symbolism of the future. Did the Jews understand it all? No way. They didn't. That's why even when Jesus came, some of them didn't understand. Most of them didn't embrace him. Because it was the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament that we hold in our hand is the Old Testament revealed. You see, we're able to look at stories like the Passover and see Jesus. We're able to see the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood that was applied to the doorpost. And we're able to understand that when I was born in Dothan, Alabama, 1973, I was born a sinner. I was under the judgment of God. I mean, you may say, well, that, I don't like to think of God that way. What's the Bible say? I mean, all sin falls short of the glory of God. Because of Adam's sin, all sin. So here's the thing. I, I wasn't a sinner because I had sinned. I sin now because I'm a sinner. It's a part of identity. We don't even debate that. When people say, well, this is part of my identity. That's not an excuse for what we do. Because before Christ, before the power of Christ, by the grace of God, we all do dumb stuff because of our identity. So that's not an excuse. So we understand that we were under the judgment of God. But listen to this. When I came to Christ, seven years old, Asked Jesus to come into my life and save me. I, for, I said, forgive me of my sins. I repented of my sins. Literally, 
the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God, the blood of Jesus was spread across the doorpost of my heart so that when Jesus looks at me, he sees the blood. Look, we live in a day where a lot of people would say, you know what, Wayne? I think we'd grow a lot faster if we just stopped talking about blood. I think we'd reach a lot more people if we just wouldn't talk about Jesus dying on the cross. You know, it's a brutal story, Wayne. It's a real story of brutality and persecution and it's disgusting. It's horrible to hear about being nailed on a tree. Why would we tell a story like that? As respectfully as I know how, listen. If you take the blood of Jesus out of the story, and if you take the cross out of the gospel, you have no gospel at all. You have no significance. You have no purpose. You have no forgiveness. You've removed the lamb from the Passover. So listen, you may draw a crowd. You may have more people by making it an easy story to hear. But we're not here to tell an easy story. We're here to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Passion Week that we celebrate every Easter just a couple months ago begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's important to remember that Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem just to celebrate the Passover meal. He went to Jerusalem. He ultimately went to the cross to become the Passover lamb. So today as we partake in communion. And I hope we do so through the lens of the Passover as we remember the blood that was spread over the doorpost. Ultimately, it was a picture, a foreshadowing of the blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. If you didn't get one of these on your way in, in every service, there's been many, so don't worry about it. Just raise your hand real quickly. We have ushers that have them already in the aisles. They're just going to bring you one of these little cups and um, it has two different lids. The first lid is, is the wafer or the bread. And the second is the, the juice. And so just be really careful. Make sure you don't get something on your, your pretty dress or your pretty slacks there. But let me go ahead and, and say this while we're getting these passed out. Keep your hand up if you didn't get one. I was reminded early in the first service, I shared a little bit about this and kind of just... It's been significant. I I think the best time I've ever had communion in my life, maybe one of the most memorable, was when Amy and I were with two of our boys in Lampa, Peru, uh, along with some other missionaries that had gone from our church. And we were sitting in a valley of a big mountain we'd just come down off of. And in the shadow of that mountain, we sat down in that valley that day and we pulled out, I think, Ritz crackers or Lance crackers, something like that. And a little bottle of water that we'd put some squirt in so it had some Kool-Aid it was Kool-Aid and Lance crackers we sat in that grassy valley and and had communion the reason that sticks with me today is because I want you to know sometimes you might have this disposable thing you might say I just don't like doing the disposable it's not my favorite either here's why I think it's important for us to hear this the significance is not the symbol but the substance The most important thing is not what you're holding in your hand. If it was, well, I don't think anybody would choose communion bread. You know, it's not like something you're going to have for dinner, right? It's ultimately what it represents. So today as we read the passage and we partake of the bread and the cup, 
We need to remember the reason we do this is that we're being reminded of the sacrifice that was made on the cross for your sins and for mine. Because without the broken body of Jesus, without the shed blood of Jesus, it's meaningless. It means nothing. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, here's what Paul said. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. I think the following words are perhaps some of the most important, at least helping us understand why we do communion. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It shows us, man, the death of Jesus is not something to be ashamed of. The cross of Jesus is not something to run away from or to hide. It is the reason we are here today. Because Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. The judgment of God was poured out. But the grace of God was extended. And you embraced his grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We know this, we don't deserve anything we have. God, without you, we'd be nothing. That's an understatement. We recognize that uh, if we got what we deserved, we'd all be under the judgment of God. But Lord, you've... You've spared us the judgment we deserve by giving us grace. So God, today as we sing this commitment song, would you just do business in our heart? God, work on us. Help us see the significance of our wrong and the beauty of your grace. Lord, I pray we'd have a newfound appreciation for what you've done. And and Lord, that we would just surrender even more to your call every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?